This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Republican Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan is closing in on the end of his time in Congress, at least for now. Last week, we discussed what he sees as the core institutional problems in the legislative branch, the future of his party, and the powers that ought to be reclaimed from the executive, and what's next for him. You're headed back to Congress, the sort of the tail end of uh, your one term in Congress, and you'll be deciding on either an omnibus bill uh, or a continuing resolution. Uh, Just for the benefit of listeners, what's the difference and what are the political consequences of doing one versus the other? So the the continuing resolution is just sort of a, a punt. You know, it it just extends the current budget we have. There may be some additional bills that are put on, but it doesn't really alter any of the spending levels from what they currently are. Um, and so, if there there's community project funding, which are the new versions of earmarks, though you know a lot more disclosure or a lot more conflict of interest kind of provisions that were included. Um, any of those that were requested for the the current omnibus for the fiscal year 2023, uh, which should have started in September, those, you know, wouldn't be included. Those kind of would get kind of scrapped out into whatever the next negotiations are. You know, if we have the omnibus, that's basically all of the appropriation bills that haven't yet been passed get rolled into one. Um, and that actually is a, a, a bona fide budget rather than just an extension of the prior budget that was agreed to. And, and so if there is that continuing resolution, then uh, the 118th Congress will have to take that up. Um, and, you know, given how slim the numbers are there on the House side, uh, you know, the House Republican majority will be as slim as the prior House Democratic majority is, uh, you know, that increases the likelihood of a government shutdown or just a, a more chaotic management effort. I may be understating this, but does it strike you as a problem that uh, several must-pass pieces of legislation end up uh, getting passed in a lame duck session where the accountability of elections is as far away as it can be. Okay. In, in the pantheon of things that are messed up about our budgeting process, that probably doesn't rise to the top to me. Like, I would much rather have discrete funding bills. I uh, I would much rather have there be kind of more transparency throughout the sad reality is that there is very little ownership of the actual outcomes among elected officials in Congress. I mean, everyone is quick to run to the microphone uh, to scream and complain about things they don't like. Uh, rarely do they then follow up with, and here's the better alternative that you know is actually practical and can be implemented. Uh, so to me, that's the much broader challenge. Now, if we just step back and look at the U.S. fiscal picture, you know, our discretionary spending is is kind of it's almost peanuts compared to, you know, what is digging us into a deeper hole from a debt and deficit standpoint. Right. I mean, that is almost exclusively the domain of our, you know, non-discretionary with spending, whether you're talking interest on the debt, which continues to increase you know, or our Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid programs, which are speeding towards insolvency. And that's insolvency already in ways that are highly you know, the, the insolvency we're heading towards doesn't necessarily mean we're in a good position today. We're just in a position where that revenue shortfall, you know, is being made up for, you know, in, in debt spending. So, um, yes, I have issues for sure. Yes, I would prefer we don't do that in a lame duck. Yes, um, I would vastly prefer to have individual appropriation packages. Uh, 
but you solve those and we still have a large, large pit to dig ourselves out of. So I appreciate you identifying much larger problems uh, than uh, <laughs> this particular one. Uh, I mean, does that lead you to the conclusion that Congress is effectively broken? I mean, I'm certainly not going to stand here and say that it, it is it is a well-functioning machine. I think I think it is emblematic of of the broader issues. Um, you know, at the same time, and th this is part of my frustration, a lot of the both the the sort of studies that goes like this is the th there's sort of two camps. There's one camp that would say Congress, this is the only thing that still works in Congress because we can at least prevent a government shutdown, which is a pretty low bar. You know, on the other hand, there is the you know this is the emblematic of why we just need to to strip everything down and, and sell it for parts. And I'm I'm in a very uncomfortable position where I think you do need to have normal processes that gain political input. You need to have elected officials who are accountable for the outcomes of their actions, right? Or inaction, right? That can mean you need to own you know, the, the lack of oversight of a lot of elements of the administrative state and the executive branch, which isn't going to be solved through funding mechanisms. Um, but the reality is that in that lack of oversight, Congress doesn't want to do its job better, right? You, you need to have the incentives there to give, frankly, Congress more power relative to the executive and have members who actually want to do something with that power, you know, rather than their idea of their own political power being from a fundraising and a brand building exercise. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sympathetic to, uh, to those who are incredibly frustrated with the process. Uh, at the same time, I'm highly skeptical uh, that those who are, are eager to, to kind of blow up the system have any idea how they want to rebuild it in a way you know, that will preserve some of the things that are still well-functioning. Um, so I, I just am kind of in a pox on all houses type of mindset. Speaking of the uh, relative power of Congress and uh, the White House and the desire among, I think, most voters that Congress do its job uh, and take hard votes and uh, not delegate so much of its authority away to other the other branches of government or executive agencies. Uh, you, you and I spoke last year uh, with your uh, House uh, House Democratic uh, uh, leader on uh, war powers. Is there any additional, uh, do you have any better sense now than when we spoke about a year ago about where those stand and whether or not uh, conservative Republicans who maybe don't like this president and uh, sort of more progressive Democrats who don't like war uh, might be willing to put something together? So, so you would think that that would be the case, right? And when we spoke, we had um, uh, myself and the the chairman of the House Rules Committee, um, uh, Congressman McGovern, right? So this is not an empty messaging exercise, right? You get the chairman of the House Rules Committee, who's the the Democratic lead on this thing, um, and we we had the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act of 2021, which basically went to war powers, uh, arms export control, and emergency powers, and said. You know, we recognize that presidents will still need to have some ability to act in a unilateral fashion, you know, temporarily. You know, if there's some immediate crisis, sure. But within 30 days, Congress should be able to convene and ratify that decision. And if a president says something's an emergency and you can't get a simple majority in Congress to agree, 
I don't know that that's an emergency, or at least it's not rising to the level that you can get elected officials to consent. So very simple, just a check on uh, when it comes to emergency powers. I mean, presidents of both of both parties have been using this to an end run around the legislative process. Donald Trump did it around uh, you know border wall construction. You know, you had other presidents who have used it for. I mean, going back to the Carter administration, where it's like, okay, we don't think Congress will pass a sanction, uh, so we'll just declare it an emergency and then continue to extend it in perpetuity. And for fans of C-SPAN or those who watch the House camera, you know, once a month, the House clerk will go through and read all the emergencies that the president has announced are being extended. Uh, and and the I think there's 40-odd emergencies, again, going back to the Carter administration. Instead of actually taking those up as discrete pieces of legislation or, or just getting rid of them if they're no longer necessary, uh, you know, our plan was, to, again, to, to have that check. Same thing around authorizations for use of military force, same thing around you know, all of these areas that are traditionally the purview of Congress, but that the executive has either had it, you know, delegated to them by neglect, or the executive has sort of seized those powers in that you know, unilateral um, executive you know, fashion. I, I was hopeful because if there's one thing you should be able to get members of Congress to agree on, it's that they should stand up for their own branch of government, that they should want to take back powers. Because if you're a Republican, you should look at it and say, great, we can diminish Biden's powers. If you're a Democrat, you can look at it and say, oh, we're worried Trump's going to come back. We don't want him to have these powers, right? Great. We agree. Presidents shouldn't have these powers. And yet there is this bias towards the status quo and this belief that if even if it's broken, if you're not directly responsible for it or won't be held responsible for it, for the love of God, don't try to fix it. Because then, then you take ownership. I'm not afraid of taking ownership. I guess my my colleague, Mr. McGovern, was not afraid of taking ownership. But I have been thoroughly unimpressed by how many of my other colleagues just they see no political upside, only political downside. Um, and and it, as a case in point, I mean, the the two lowest hanging fruits in this realm are repealing the 1957 authorization for use of military force that Eisenhower requested just in case he needed to invade the Middle East because of communist uprisings, or the 1991 authorization for use of military force to take out Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein's been dead for a very long time. Uh, We have an authorization for use of military force that underpinned the 2003 war, uh, but instead of just saying and, and, and frankly, there's nobody who was making any argument why we needed to keep either of these. I mean, they passed through the House with overwhelming support. We had them attached to the National Defense Authorization Act that passed out of the House with overwhelming support. And yet when it came time in the Senate, uh, they stripped those two provisions out. So I, I'm a big believer that like, if the easy things, if the no-brainer things are this hard, how in the heck do we hope we can actually tackle the big, large, substantive challenges. And the reality is we won't until, Congress won't, until it's absolutely forced to and has no other choice, at which point any solutions are going to be far more painful. Any proposals, you know, are going to be, you know, rammed through rather than go through a more patient, deliberative process. Um, And it's kind of dispiriting that, to me, what needs to happen to make our country run better is we need to have more power in Congress, less power in the presidency. You want more power concentrated in areas that are more accountable to the voters and to the electorate uh, and remove that from the less accountable executive branch. But we can't get there if Congress doesn't want those powers, if they view 
those responsibilities as a burden uh, that distract them from their low dollar fundraising and their cable news hits. Uh, I'm reminded of Barack Obama when he was leaving office saying that he was concerned that he was leaving a loaded gun in the White House and then almost implied at the end of that was, oh, well, what's the worst that could happen? I don't know, an unauthorized war of of choice that, you know, is not ratified by Congress because it already had these zombie authorizations floating out there and the president run amok. But I mean, at least we've proven as a country that we only elect serious, sober, long term thinking individuals to the White House who are, you know, of of clear faculty and, and state of mind. So, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. Your your race in uh, Michigan uh, was in, in a way sort of emblematic of what we ultimately saw on Election Day uh, here in 2022, which was incumbent Republican uh, loses to a Trumpier Republican and then loses the general election to a Democrat. Is there any sense? as far as you can tell, within your party, that this is probably not sustainable. (laughs) Um, It's really easy to at least privately acknowledge the problem. It's really hard to then both agree on a solution and be willing to take the risks needed to pursue that solution. And and I, it it cracked me up, I would hear time and again in the halls, uh, especially the tunnels below Congress, be walking and someone would come up to me and say, hey, man, like, I am I wish you all the best of luck. I'm right behind you. And I would say, you know, sure, but, but could you be beside me, <laughs> right? Like, right behind me, I get it. Like, you're going to, you know, pushing through like a battering ram, but like, could, could, could we get over this collective action problem? Um, and the reality is that right now, I mean, it's just really, really... Uh, it's it's a hard there, there's a lot of penalties for being the first mover uh, and and the and you can be right and you can be early and you could be the same thing as wrong uh, if you don't get the timing right and i i clearly didn't get the timing right but this was not a strategic you know political you know cynical calculation so much as you know votes that i felt i needed to cast um uh, but the reality is i mean we have problems with our primary system in this country we have in which you know a primary can be a massive vulnerability to the electability of a candidate unless you have a party that's able to control them. Uh, on the Democratic side, my Democratic challenger, both in 2020 and in tw- and who wound up being the um, running against the, the gentleman who beat me in 2022, and she's now the Congresswoman elect. She ran unopposed in her primaries, which more power to them, right? I mean, essentially a. a anarchic system rewards those who don't descend into anarchy, but can have some modicum of organization. Um, Now, again, like I said, you need to both agree on what the problem is and be willing to embrace it. I think the problem right now is insurgent factions that are just kind of angry, flailing about and view everything as an act. It's a lot easier and more convenient to say, you know, you were betrayed from within than that you lost from without. And and that is a compelling narrative that that works in a primary. But then we elevate candidates who have no choice in or have no potential in the general. Um, and the gentleman who beat me, he underperformed Donald Trump, who 
lost this seat by nine points in 2020, underperformed Trump by five, and the the Democratic, uh, you know, now Congresswoman-elect of the Michigan's 13 congressional districts, uh, this was the only district where the Democratic nominee outperformed the incumbent Democratic governor, um, which is just an astounding feat. Uh, not so much to her credit as to the detriment of the uh, gentleman who beat me. But, you know, as we saw with the Democrats kind of coming in at the last minute, dropping a half million dollars to to prop up um, my my Republican Trump endorsed challenger, it also becomes a very easy landscape for a better organized party to, to kind of manipulate and, and to take advantage of the weakness on the other side. Um, so if I have any takeaway, it's that, you know, never underestimate the naked cynicism of our, our political process um, and nor you know, underestimate what one party will do just for marginal political advantage, even if doing so uh, is entirely at odds with their purported ideals and, uh, and principles. So you, you talked about votes you needed to take. Of course, the, as you uh, point out, uh, I've heard you pointed out at least a few times, the first vote you ever took as a member of Congress, was to impeach a president of your own party. Uh, how did your relations like my nineteenth vote? Just okay. saying, we had a bunch of roll calls. We had okay, the, I see. We had the I certification. See. Yeah, yeah. So your your first substantive but, vote then. This is uh, the tenth day. Yeah. <laughs> so wh- how did your relationship with the Republican Party change after that? Yeah, it, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It didn't. There were certainly some tough moments and and some tough. Um, you know, conversations and, and kind of the weeks that followed. But this was also back when on the right, uh, January 6th was still largely understood to be a bad thing. Um, and and frankly, I had a lot of colleagues who, you know, thought, you know, okay, well, let's look if, if we're, you know, this is the conversation in January and February 2021. It was like, yes, January 6th was bad. Let's just speed bump past it, put it behind us, um, not have to deal with any of the the kind of soul searching or, or you know whatever that should occur or any accountability, because what happens in midterm elections is there a referendum on the president in power, and we can go back over the past century and look at how many seats the incumbent president's party lost in that first midterm, and it usually averages around forty. Uh, so I think there was both a there was this kind of cynical calculation that um, we just need to keep ourselves together and and we don't need to do the hard work in the moments after January 6th and things will be fine. This will be fine. Um, my counterpoint is if we're doing a cynical political calculation, we just, you know, in 2020, our Republicans were slated to lose or expected to lose 12 to 15 seats. We actually picked up 13 seats on the same ballots that Trump lost uh, because it turns out uh, the defund the police slogan and, you know, the riots over the summer of 2020 and the just belief that Democrats were unhinged and unmoored from reality, that hurt them negatively at the ballot box. And I view January 6th, again, if we're looking at it cynically, as defund the police on freaking steroids. Because instead of, you know, isolated incidences where, yes, there wasn't the forceful condemnation ex post that we should have expected from officials when it comes to violence and looting and destruction. Um, they also weren't like integral in organizing and encouraging, you know, insanity and and, and violence and bad things. And uh, yeah, I think folks thought that they could 
have their cake and eat it too. And then uh, we just got absolutely trounced in the midterms. But I think the bigger challenge is within the parties, it became a search for scapegoats of why things are bad very quickly. And the easiest, again, the easiest thing is to accuse your own side of treason and perfidy. And that's the near enemy that you got to you know abolish. Um, and so uh, as Biden was sending the economy going in bad areas, Republicans Instead of, and again, I would go to all of these meetings and, and I, people would be angry. I would say, I understand why you're angry. I know why you're frustrated. Look at how poorly our government is managing the southern border, right? Look at the baby formula shortage and just this incompetency. Look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We can point to fil- governmental failure after failure after failure, incompetence and maladministration. And then I would say, here's how we actually fix it. Right. And go through some very boring things about, you know, delegation of powers and, and maybe ideally at some point getting a, a, a more favorable reinterpretation of what the Commerce Clause actually means uh, and having, you know, a Supreme Court that looks at the Tenth Amendment and says, oh, let's go by the plain text here. Right. But that is a lot less interesting than and it requires a lot more patience. Uh, and maybe I needed to figure out a better way of communicating it. Um, you know, because we talked about the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act. You're angry about the OSHA vaccine mandate? Great. You're talking to the guy who's the co-lead on the most substantive bipartisan piece of legislation to actually change how emergency powers you know, exist in this country. Um, but when you have an electorate that assumes, that views sort of legislating, and frankly, when you have members of Congress who view legislating as a frivolity, and that the thing that really moves the needle is getting in the media and making sure your narrative is adopted. I'm trying to tell them what we're doing substantively and how we may actually be able to pass legislation to change this because it was bicameral, bipartisan. Everyone should be incentivized. We're trying to whip the votes on this thing and get more co-sponsors. And and they're just saying, why can't you be more like Marjorie Taylor Greene? So that that was uh, that was frustrating. That's pretty that's a pretty grim uh, assessment there. Uh, what's next for you? I'm going to be focused on on continuing, continuing to kind of drive the ball forward, right? I mean, I, there are three domains that I'm I'm very interested in. I mean, one is, you know, pursuing solutions at the state and local level so that the federal government isn't tempted to wade in with worse uh, alternatives. Uh, and so, you know, whether I think that the two main ones in in kind of West Michigan, I mean, housing, you know, homelessness kind of crime, those kind of community-centric issues that all bleed into the others and not waiting for the federal government to come with their kind of proposed solution that's always some roundabout, long, you know, conflict-ridden uh, mess. Number two is also trying to take some of the lessons I've learned and help others avoid some of the mistakes that I made, uh, look for areas where instead of having, instead of continuing to move this ball uphill and, and and fighting against gravity, you know, are there ways we can level that playing field so it's less biased towards a broken status quo and and more uh, in line to hue to, frankly, the the rule, the guidebook that can, or the the map that can lead us to a much better place. Which uh, we're fortunate that over two hundred and you know thirty odd years ago, a bunch of smart folks got together in Philadelphia and hammered this out. Right, we have we have a map here, uh, but to to more closely hue to that in terms of how government works so it can function better uh, and then continuing to pursue some of my work in the international realm um, you know especially when it comes to Afghanistan and areas that I have kind of personal and, and professional experience and interest 
Peter Meyer is a Republican congressman from Michigan we spoke last week. It's that time of year when I ask you, yes you, to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute. You can visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you.